Wine and Crime contains graphic and explicit content which may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Wine coming! We have another special announcement. You swooped in and bought all of the tickets to the Gramercy Theater Show. That show is sold out. Sold out. Bye-bye. So, we have a second live show in New York City in case you miss your chance at tickets. That's right. We've added a second show. It's going to be at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York on Sunday, July 9th. That happens to be my mom's birthday. Ooh, she fun. will not be in attendance, but oh, at least I have will, an excuse. She's got better things to do. She's got better <laughs> things to, you, to do, but you don't. So you should be at the Bell House on Sunday, July 9th with us. The show starts at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Get your tickets now at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Once again, tickets are going really quick, so get yours today. Don't hesitate. It will definitely sell out. We love the Bell House. We're so excited. We will see you on July 9th in Brooklyn. See you then. You are listening to Wine and Crime, the podcast where three friends chug wine, chat true crime, and unleash their worst Minnesotan accents. Uh, uh. <laughs> I don't know why. Don't ask Ooh. questions because I don't know. <laughs> Somebody asked me recently how long I saw the podcast going for. One <laughs> season. Like, back when we were thinking we'd have seasons. It was like forever, please. Oh my Does god! Does it have to end? No, I don't want it to end. I don't either. I know. I know. Right. And that's not us softly saying that we're ending the we're podcast. Not. No, it really sounded like you guys it were. Really sounded like it for a I second. Know. I caught I caught myself. No. Time has come. The yeah. opposite. Yeah. We, we gotta want to keep this train rolling. Tell a friend. Okay. We want more. We <laughs> want so much more, please. I am ruined for anything else. Okay. We have a <laughs> oh no, I'm Kenyan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Kenyan. I'm ruined. I'm ruined. I'm Lucy. I'm Amanda. We have a very special gals pick for you this Mm -hmm. week. We have got a lot of gals picks coming up. Mm -hmm. It's kind of fun to like treat ourselves every once in a while and just get a lot of our picks on the calendar. Yeah. We got ideas. Yeah. Yeah. We have so many ideas. So I forget which who thought of this one, but we have macabre. Mysteries, mm-hmm. yes, yes, mm-hmm. for you. I love a mystery. I love the unsolved. Obviously, yes. I love the macabre. Yeah, mm-hmm. love, 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 love. It's gonna That's be a good to one. love. It's gonna haunt you forever. Okay, my case is so fucking weird. You yes, like it's not very long, and there's really no resolution whatsoever. I'm hoping for zero resolution this whole episode. You may get that. Mm, A lot of more information has come to light in recent years for my episode, for my case. Mm -hmm. I'm still technically unsolved. Okay, perfect. So first, Amanda, what is our wine crime pairing for Macabre Mysteries? Well, it is a beautiful summer week 
honestly. Mm-hmm. So I ventured away from wine this week, and today I am drinking a mysterious little beer from the local brew house, Indeed Brewing Company. Mm. This is the Indeed Paloma. <gasps> you uh, lucky bitch. That sounds so good. Okay, this I is why I... That. It's really fucking good. This is why I chose it, because I'm in kind of like a canned cocktail era. You mm-hmm. are. And I'm really loving it, because I am a bougie bitch, but I'm a lazy bitch. Mm-hmm. And while this isn't a cocktail, this is a beer, it's inspired by the Paloma cocktail. And typically that would just indicate like a grapefruit infused ale, which it is that, but But it kicked up a notch. It drinks like a Paloma kind of like, I don't know how the fuck they did it. It's actually (laughs) amazing. It's only 5.5%. So you're not going to go nuts. You can crack a couple of them and not Mm -hmm. be ruined. Actually, this version is 5.1%. I think a previous one, was 5.5. It, uh, I think the base of it, it is an ale, but it's like a sour ale. So that might be how they got some of that flavor punch. Yeah. Is it kind of like shrubby? I love a shrub. It's really not too shrubby. It's like, it's not too sweet. It's honestly a perfect summer beer. Like Mm. it almost drinks like an elevated shandy. And I don't want to disgrace this beer by referring to it as a shandy because it's not a shandy. But, it it just goes down so easy, but it's so mm. good. Like, I'm obsessed with it. This is cool. absolutely my summer. It's also beer. very cute. It's yeah. super cute. I love the fucking packaging. I mean, Indeed Brewing is absolutely amazing. It's they are so fabulous. So it's a kettle sour. It's brewed with natural flavors, and then they infuse grapefruit in there as well. And it is so fucking good. And I love I- it. I'm very jealous. I'm drinking fucking water. Boo! I got a gingy, little ginger Ooh, ale. Oh, yeah. Mm. I it's love another that early recording, you. though. So, you know. I get it. Well, yeah. shall we crack this beer yeah. open? Yes. Okay, listen to the dulcet, gorgeous summer sounds of this beer. Here we go. Oh, oh nice crack. Nice crack. I'm oh, my God. Refreshed from here. Holy shit. That's it's so, so that's a local Minneapolis thing? It is a local Minneapolis beer. Uh I think it's also available in a couple of the Dakotas and you might be able to get it in Iowa as well. <gasps> You'll just right have now. to visit. If you look on mm. their website, I think they have a map mm. of where you can get their beers. Yes, they do have a map. Indigo? Oh, mm. they don't have it in Iowa, but they have it right on the border. Uh no, it's indeed. Oh, indeed. Yep, they have it in North Dakota. They have it in Wisconsin. Not in South Dakota. Not in South Dakota. <laughs> and Minnesota. Well, wow. I'll be in Minnesota in like a, a month, month and a half. Yeah, yeah, so you can stack up. It's tasty. It's yeah. uh, they. I got it at the liquor store that's right by my house, which is super cute. This liquor store looks really small and unassuming on the outside, but then it has like the best cold walk-in cooler selection mm. ever. It's like it's like the Mary Poppins handbag of walk-in coolers. Like you don't expect <laughs> it to be able to have that much stuff in it. Their selection's really good. I need to stock up on some stuff like that that's like easy sippers because mm-hmm. my tolerance has gotten Yeah, you're so a man. low. <laughs> mm-hmm. That like I have my our whole house we have so much fucking booze in this house. It's and, hard stuff though. But I I don't 
you know, none of it. I'm always like, oh, do I really want to get that drunk? Do I really mm-hmm. want to feel that way? No. I need mm-hmm. some easy sippers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, cheers. 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 All uh, right. Uh, Lucy, what is our background and maybe psych for macabre mysteries? I have neither. I'm doing a case today. <gasps> which is so also excited. kind of our new thing. Yeah. It's our new era. More gals picks. More, more cases. three cases. I also yeah. love when you sneak in with a case and then I do like the Jean Parmesan scream because I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes, especially when That's it comes to macabre up. mysteries, mm. they're my fucking favorite. So I, you really do love a mystery. I also love like a specific time period of mystery. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely in my wheelhouse. Okay, okay. so. During the 16th century, oh no, Europe was real amped about ex- exploring, uh, colonizing, colonizing the yeah. New World, <laughs> aka the Americas. Mm-hmm. The Chesapeake Bay and areas in the northern mid-Atlantic coast were their main landing target in the beginning. So, like Chesapeake Bay specifically, mm-hmm. the French and the Spaniards had sailed past. What's what was called the Outer Banks of what is now North Carolina a few times. So there's a, sp- a smattering of islands like right outside of North Carolina in the yep. Atlantic. Mm. Um, so they'd sailed past these. And just to the north of that is like the big Chesapeake Bay near what is now like D.C. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the French and the Spaniards were aware of this area. They thought it looked kind of nice, but they they had not made any effort to settle in that region. So enter Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh. Mm, like Raleigh, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Got it. He was okay. an enormously wealthy courtier and favorite of Elizabeth I. In 1584, he got her permission to settle a colony in North America. And the actual patented leather, leather, <laughs> letter. <laughs> patent leather. The patent, patented the, the patented leather. Letter. <laughs> That's the patent leather indicates <laughs> that he would be entitled to as much land as he wanted that wasn't, oh, okay. quote, already possessed by any Christian prince. Mm-hmm. So there were already specifically English settlers kind of up northern, kind of. This mm-hmm. was still very, very early. Mm-hmm. But the queen was like, you yeah, can have it. go over there and take whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Finders keepers. Right. But like for her, but then she would like let him have it. it. But he it was would really be for her. Enormously wealthy for yeah. generations. Mm-hmm. So th- she also didn't want to let him go because she liked him and she liked mm-hmm. his attention. Are you getting, getting to it? Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. So this was great news for him financially, of course, and also politically. However, there were two catches, really. The patent leather giving him permission to do this specified that... It was a little tight. It had to be broken in. Uh, It gives you such bad blisters. (laughs) I'm having flashbacks to being five years old and going to church. Mm -hmm. I had these black patent leather Mary Janes with a pink bow on them. Why were they they always always too small? They always were too small, and they always cut my and feet, those even through really my white thin tights. The white socks with the little frills around yep. the ankle, mm-hmm. and then they were always had like blood stains. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. We Why did they do suffered. that? 
we they, suffered. They never. Our generation. They would suffered. never do that to kids nowadays. No, it's child abuse. No, kids these days get like tiny. What are they called? Hey Crocs. dudes. Rothies. Have you ever heard of <laughs> hey dudes? Uh uh-uh. uh. They're just hideous, like slip on <laughs> sandals. You'd recognize mm. them if you saw them. They're not cute. Okay. 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 So the patent leather was literally tight. They specified that he needed to establish a colony by 1591 or lose his rights to this colonization. He was also, like Kenyon said, forbidden to go himself Mm -hmm. because she liked him. Mm -hmm. So he had to send delegates. Mm. So this is from firstcolonyfoundation.org. Raleigh's aim was to establish a colony so as to stake England's claim to the largely unknown to Europeans landmass of North America and from which he could launch raids on the Spanish West Indies and annual treasure fleets. So basically, they needed a base to protect Fuck their interests the and also mm-hmm. launch attacks against the Spanish, which were like in the Caribbean, largely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was very strategic. And again, attacking the Spanish, it was all about the gold and also just the control of the region. Mm-hmm. So he sent some ships to investigate these outer banks of what is now North Carolina, which landed in July of 1581. There were several islands in the area that they found to be teeming with wildlife, game, and timber. So lots of resources. This looked mm-hmm. great. It was also the positioning was really good. I think you said 1581, but you wrote 1584. I don't know if it matters. 1584 is what I meant to say because Hmm. that was the year that he got permission from Queen Elizabeth. 1584. Got it. 1584. It was the 1580s. Yeah, it was the 80s. It was was wild back then. (laughs) Okay, so found this area, strategically located lots of resources. Specifically, they liked the island of Roanoke, which was 10 miles long and two and a half miles wide and inhabited by Native Americans, specifically the Sakotans, mm. who were friendly and indicated that they would be their allies. So Roanoke was a little bit north of another island called Croatoa, Croatoan. Mm. And so that'll come back later, but they're very close to each other. The original expedition returned to England along with two prominent native men named Monteo and Wanchis and reported that not only was this a great area to start a colony, it was likened to the Garden of Eden in like letters and reports. Mm. Also, these two men were high up in their communities and tribes, so they were like being very diplomatic. They were, they like, were like, oh, ambassadors, wow. basically. They were ambassadors. And so the 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 queen and the, the English people were like, oh, wow, this, this is great. Out. Mm. Yeah, it's working out. It also had easy access to large rivers, and there were rumors of a whole lot of gold mm. because they didn't know at the time how big North America was and really what the proximity was or how easy it would get uh, it would be to get down to like the Aztecs and where all the Spanish found all this gold in like Central mm-hmm. and South America. Hmm. So they were like, "Oh wow, if there's so much gold down there, there's who knows what's up, up here. here?" Yeah, right. Turns out not much. So Raleigh was delighted and committed to founding the first permanent English settlement in North America. Of course, not personally because he wasn't allowed to go. He was grounded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was grounded. She had a crush on him, and she had all the power. Oh mm-hmm. my god. 
1585, Raleigh sent a first wave of 600 colonists to evaluate and explore the area. So this was mostly a military recon situation. They were mostly military men. Mm -hmm. The intention was for half of them to stay to establish the colony, the other half to go back, and then a second group would come later to, like, reinforce. Okay. A A man named Ralph Lane was appointed governor of that colony, and the fleet commander, his name was Sir Richard Grenville, he'll come back repeatedly, led the overall mission. On the way over, one of the ships was badly damaged and they lost a bunch of provisions, meaning that the colony would not have been able to support the 300 people they intended to leave at the Mm. colony. So they decided they could only leave about 100 behind while the rest went back to England. And then again, they would have the second wave arrive with more supplies in a few months. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Yeah, Yeah. whenever. Whenever you get to it. Yeah. Yeah. We're not it's just crossing the Atlantic. It'll be quick. Imagine getting on a fucking ship back then. No. And no. <laughs> Stop I won't. there. No. I won't imagine <laughs> I, that. I can't. I no, can't. I refuse to imagine that. Yeah. Thanks, though. Thanks for playing. Uh, so <laughs> you would die. The likelihood that you would die in transit was so high. Yeah. Also, just like. Or the- upon arrival. Or mm-hmm. upon return. Weather playing a factor in all of these crossings was like really intense. Also, Packing. they had they had to go from England down to like the Bermudas or like Jamaica, places around there, just to like get out of the bad weather and like gas up and right. then go up the coast to yeah, Chesapeake. They couldn't do a straight shot. Yet. They couldn't yeah. do a straight shot. So it just That's- took a no from me, Dag. It was just... No. It just sounds like a fucking nightmare. Mm-hmm. So, so the 100 say the 500 went back to England, but there was no way to know, there was no way that they could know that the second group to come back with all the new supplies was redirected to Newfoundland. Mm. And this was because they had been told to go to Newfoundland to warn the fishermen, the commercial fishers up there, that Spain was planning an attack on all English commercial ships. Mm. So they were like, you got, like, be careful. send this message. You might be in danger. That was the only way they could communicate with them. So they couldn't Mm -hmm. go back to Roanoke or that area. They had to go up to Newfoundland. Yeah. They're already way delayed. So this meant that the colony was going to have to rely really heavily on the generosity of the natives. By June 1586, nailed it, There was a lot of tension. So this was a full year that they had been there, like, kind of waiting for for their second wave. Yep. There was a lot of tension and violence between the English settlers and, like, all these local tribes. So that first colony eventually decided to evacuate back to England. And this, this wave of 100 or however many were left, they were the first ones to bring tobacco, maize, and potatoes to England. This is mm. when all those things were introduced to England, which I thought was interesting. That mm-hmm. is interesting. Mm-hmm. Literally a few days after they left Roanoke, Grenville's fleet from Newfoundland arrived. Days. Days. <laughs> they were equipped with a year's worth of supplies and provisions and 400 more men. Uh, and everyone is like, gone. Where the fuck did everyone go? Oh my god. So the 
so the Native Americans in the area were like, yeah, well, this is what happened. And they they're, they're they gone. left. And so they found out what happened and they just pieced out back to England, leaving behind a dozen or so men who were never heard from again. <laughs> what? So all of this is to say that this first attempt, this first wave and the second wave was a complete clusterfuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you kind of had to, it, they should have just gone with everything they thought they could need and those people sure. were going to stay the fuck there. Mm-hmm. There was just no way they could have known what to expect. The commu- right. There was no communication. This was right. the only way they could get information. Sure. Just like a, a, a fucking nightmare. And it gets worse, obviously. It sounds like trying to like coordinate Ubers while drunk. Oh God! And Don't like, run a, into like your cell like service group of people. It's yeah. you're in Las Vegas. Someone's yeah. phone died right yeah. while they were selecting the car. This yeah, was us good. trying to get back to the Gaylord Opry yeah. on Cinco de Mayo after our meetup in Nashville. Yeah, trying to add a stop. No one That's knew it one was one of the drunkest prices. nights I've ever had. Yeah, oh, it was awful. And I was tossing shots into the. Me too. We were pouring them in a plant (laughs) because y'all kept fucking buying us shots as we lay there dying. (laughs) (laughs) It was horrifying. We decided to leave because I thought the floor was going to collapse. Yes, that was really scary. It was like a dance party on a roof of this old built. It was right on Broadway in downtown Nashville. It was anyway. Yeah, this is like that. We're basically, basically. like the the colonists in Roanoke. Yeah, yeah. basically yeah. is what we're saying. We understand yeah. their plight. We really do. We totally get it. So, <laughs> first attempt, total clusterfuck. These were some of the issues that existed. But Raleigh was, of course, undeterred because he had a lot to gain and nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was told by some of the guys in the first wave that they were confident that the Pacific Ocean was like just beyond the area that they had already mapped out, which, mm. like, obviously just five more minutes, you guys. So five close. more five minutes, minutes. we'll be there. Yeah, We're I so can close. smell it. Yeah. I swear. When Me in- getting lost on a hiking trail with my friend Katie in Arizona. <laughs> I, I The map says we're so close. We're like five minutes away for two hours. We're like two thirds of the way there for sure. So Throw did they think me, that North America was essentially just like a strip of land between the two oceans? Basically, mm. they didn't know how wide it was. They also right. didn't know that going straight west from where they were was, in fact, the widest part of what is now the <laughs> right. Know, like mm. they were a little last. They hadn't mapped it out yet, and they were yeah. relying on rumors, mm-hmm. information from probably the native tribes. Probably could have asked the native tribes a little more pointed questions, or actually listened to what they said if they were like, "So, tell me about the ocean on." the other side of this and the native mm-hmm. tribes were like what are you talking about you idiot yeah. but also <laughs> like like it might have been to their benefit not to tell them jack shit right, right. these fucking folks go. coming in just taking their shit go find it <laughs> yeah. yeah no there's definitely stuff over just there just keep going almost there <laughs> yup you're doing yeah. great sweetie yeah. <laughs> just they all you're fucking great, die sweetie. you're doing great sweetie uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, you got this. Welcome. Get back. Bye. Have the most yeah. fun. You got this, girlfriend. No, we have loved having you. <laughs> We're really, we have. We'll catch yeah. up. Bye. <laughs> Good job, mama. <laughs> I fucking so hate that. So proud of you, mama. 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 <laughs> it's like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Mama. know why like very petty indigenous tribes is like my new favorite thing. Like, uh-huh. Bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like good job, mama. <laughs> Proud of you, mama. <laughs> God. You Go got find- this, mama. Go find that ocean, mama. Fucking if only it had worked out that way. We're, we're imitating a TikTok that is really funny, and I can't remember the name of the creator I right now, but we'll find it. It's like every mommy blog. Yeah. You got this, mama. You're doing great, mama. Mama. <laughs> it's so horrible. It's okay. really funny. Okay. I hear Ray throwing up somewhere. Oh, wait, it's a dog. Okay, never mind. Okay. You have a dog a now? That was a dog outside. Sounds oh. like Ray throwing up inside. Just a rabid <laughs> wandering dog. <laughs> the neighbors okay. have dogs. Yeah. Okay, so good job, mama. <laughs> and they were like, we're pretty sure the ocean's like right like right there. Like we're like, almost there. Like we're let's right just try on the one more try. We got it. Mm-hmm. So basically, we were like super close to settling the entire continent. Like basically. Totally. Like we're almost there. We're doing it, sweetie. We're doing it. So Raleigh approved another charter to go back and found the city of Raleigh with a guy mm. named John White as the new governor. And also the queen wanted him to name that whole area Virginia. Like her intention was to name the entire continent Virginia, mm-hmm. I guess. Virginia. She just wanted Virginia. I didn't know that that was her idea. I thought it was their idea to suck up to her. Mm. Uh, had something to do with her. Yeah. I thought she wanted him to. Maybe not. I don't fucking know. Had something w- to do with her. It would please the queen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So approximately 115 people agreed to join the colony, including John White's pregnant daughter, Eleanor. Not and Virginia. Her, and her husband, Ananias Dare. So she made that trek pregnant? Mm-hmm. Ugh. Also worth noting that Roanoke Island is now basically called Dare County. A lot of these names are still around the area. Hmm. So Dare is an important name. Also, obviously, Mm. Raleigh. Most of the colonists were just regular folk, middle-aged Londoner, middle-aged, middle-class Londoners, (laughs) probably not (laughs) middle-aged. Well, middle-aged then is like They didn't make it to (laughs) middle-age. So they were regular people probably looking to become landed gentry in the new world. So like we have this opportunity, big we could be like big reward, big reward if it paid mm-hmm. off. Mm-hmm. Unlike the first colony, there was no military in this one. It was like regular people. Mm. There were professionals, like there were like a blacksmith. Some, there was a, like a blacksmith. There was a, a like a metallurgist, a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker. Yeah, mm-hmm. people who. Could farmers. like sail for the most parts, build boats, things Actually, like that. Actually, not farmers because they're all from London. Mm. Definitely not farmers. Yeah. I would like could be that. a farmer Hobby, like, in those clothes, like hobbyist gardeners. At right, best. right. So no military. Their goal was to land in Chesapeake Bay and set up there. But when they got over, the mariner in charge of transporting them. Again, there's no military, so they were just relying on like. 
their tour guide, basically, (laughs) for some reason that isn't super clear, decided to just ditch them at Roanoke Island. Mm. So they had already planned a pit stop there, but the mariner was like, nah, I'm not going to take you any farther. Like, you're good here. Bye. (laughs) So they were just at Roanoke at this point. So they landed on Roanoke at Ju- on July 22nd, 1587. When they first got there, they found the abandoned site from the first colony with its built. This is so creepy. With its buildings standing vacant and overgrown with melons. Melons. Ooh. Melons. Isn't that oh, creepy? That is I creepy. I do not like that. They also found some human bones, which they presumed were those of some of Grenville's men, so like that dozen who stayed behind who were never heard from again. Mm. They're like, oh, well, these people were obviously like killed by Native Americans. Mm-hmm, creepy. So to add to the spookiness of their situation, one of the colonists was killed pretty much immediately after landing while hunting for crabs mm. by a Native person. They didn't. Not a whole lot of information on that, but basically one of them was murdered right away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what the they, fuck are you doing here? Yeah. And they also like stand went, your ground laws. Yeah. Yeah. They also like went and talked to some of the local native people and learned about all of the violence and strife that had led to the first colony's evacuations. So they were like, mm-hmm. oh, fuck. What the fuck have we gotten ourselves into? Well, yeah. Then it's like, oh, of course they're going to like kill us on site if they get us alone because yeah, it's already been a mess up set here. the precedent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they ha- they had the ability to like have conversations and have like ambassadors from both parties to like communicate and come up with agreements and things like that, but it was still it was still tense. Mm-hmm. I mean, very tense. Very culturally different and they don't have all of the context and information of like the first group correct and they have a lot of prejudices and biases about Mm -hmm. who they're dealing with of course yeah it was very precarious yeah Mm -hmm. on august 18th so like a few weeks later eleanor dare had her baby a daughter whom she named virginia In honor of being the first Christian born in Virginia, which, again, Virginia was basically their word for, like, North America. North America. Uh, Yeah, everywhere. So that was exciting. New baby, first baby. We're we're doing it, Peter. Can Mm -hmm. you imagine? No. The amount of baby gear that I have (laughs) just to get by. Yeah. Uh And she has, like, some vacant buildings and human lots bones of melons. and melons lots uh-huh. of melons that's it but the colony again this is just a few weeks after they got there the colony had already began to struggle they were low on supplies they were freaked about their relations with their new neighbors and so governor white john white decided that he would go back to england to get more provisions and just like come right back i'll be right back brb BRB, babes. <laughs> BRB. Well, no, he was Eleanor's father. So it was, okay. he, he was there with his daughter, her husband, and his new grandchild. Right. So, like, he wasn't trying to ditch them. them. No, he really definitely wanted not. to just get more supplies. Okay. He was in charge at the time. So he was right. like, I have to do something. I have to go back to England. BRB. 
Okay. So he left on August 27th, so like a fucking month after they got there. In that situation, would you want to get back on that boat and get your ass back to England? Like you're not him, you're you. Like if you're Eleanor or if yeah. you're like a settler. Right. I'd probably Or would leave. you just be like, I'm just going to stay here and probably die. And I don't want to get back on that boat. I think I'd leave. I think I'd risk it. To get back to England? To just go back. Like, I'm I'm out. I think I'd stay. Mm. I don't think I'd get back on the boat. I think I'd just choose to die there. I don't think I'd get Ugh. back on the boat. Yeah. Oh, no. I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, no, yo. So John White goes back to England. And lucky for him, he made it back on November 5th right on time for the reports to have reached London of the Spanish Armada mobilizing for an attack. Mm -hmm. And Queen Elizabeth had prohibited any able ships from leaving England so that they might participate in the coming battle. So she's like, everyone's grounded. I get all your Spanish are coming. We're using all your ships for this huge battle. That's Mm -hmm. like definitely coming. So I, I own your ship now. Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. A bunch of frustrating nonsense ensues. Grenville, remember him? He's like the leader of the first wave. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He got permission from Elizabeth to sail to the Caribbean to attack the Spanish. So he's like, "I'll if I can leave. I'll distract him. I'll distract him in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. So White tagged along with Grenville with all of his supplies, hoping to get back to his colony in Roanoke afterwards. He's like, at least I'll be on this side of the Atlantic. I can He'll just catch a ride. Shimmy, yep. shimmy back up to my daughter, my family. Mm-hmm. So they were supposed to leave England in March. They did not leave until late April. They were attacked near Morocco in May. The oh, rescue supplies were looted and they had to go back to England. <laughs> oh, shit. So they ended up. Back on the boat anyway. So he left in August and we're now in he, May and he, he le- still he, is o- he left over there. Ro- yeah, he left Roanoke to go back to England in August. Mm-hmm. He was back there being grounded by the Queen because of the Spanish Armada. Yep. Grenville negotiated going to the Caribbean in right. March. They were late because of weather. They didn't leave till April. They got attacked near Morocco in May. They lost all their supplies, so there was no point in him going anyway. Mm -hmm. So they went back to England. White couldn't get permission to get back to Roanoke to his wife and daughter and granddaughter until 1590. This three years after he left in the first place. (laughs) To get those emergency supplies. BRB. Oh, God. This was three years after the BRB, the grocery run. (laughs) And you have no idea. No. No They're They're sitting on the beach. Where's mm-hmm. my dad? My dad's coming home soon. Could have <laughs> been at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. They no, have no idea. idea. Meanwhile, the Spanish Empire had been gathering intelligence on the English colonies in North America. They did not know that the first colony had evacuated, and they also super duper overestimated their success in mm-hmm. settling in this area. Mm-hmm. So the Spanish thought that the English had established a huge pirate haven on a mountain of diamonds. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Guarding. For sure. Guarding diamonds, a direct. Melons. Yeah. Human guarding, Same diff. Guarding a direct route through to the Pacific Ocean. Sure. So the Spaniards thought that the English they, they like, were like, they, it's, held it's the key El Dorado. to everything. Right. Mm-hmm. To add in 
a scheme on the part of the Spanish to come over and wipe out any English colonies that they found. So this was an mm-hmm. added danger. Mm. These rumors that the Spanish had heard that the English were like, they got it. We we should we got to go wipe them out because they've got yeah. it all under control. We, they're mm-hmm. they're in a dangerous, powerful position. So finally, like I said, three full years after leaving on his quick grocery run in August of 1590, <laughs> White finally returned. Finally. Mm. He landed on Croatoan Island, which is, like I said, very close to Roanoke, and it's named after the Croatan people who lived there. And it is today called Hatteras Island. Hatteras. Mm. Hatteras. Okay. So they land there. They spotted smoke plumes coming from Roanoke, but they couldn't make it over to that island because of, like, really bad weather. They tried to make it over, but, like, people died. Oh. Jeez. Just trying to make it over there. Can you imagine, like... Making it that you, far. You're close... Yeah, you're close you're enough so- to see it smoldering, but you would die trying to access it. Yes, after three years. That's wild. On August 17th, they spotted a fire on the north end of Roanoke and rode towards it, but they reached the island after nightfall and decided not to risk coming ashore. This is so mm. heartbreaking. The men spent the night in their anchored boats just right offshore singing English songs in a in the hope that the colonists would hear them. Like, we're here, we're here. We're here, mm-hmm. we're your friends. I'm your dad. Oh my God. White and the others made landfall on the morning of August 18th, which was his granddaughter's third birthday. The party found fresh tracks in the sand, but they were not contacted by anyone. They discovered the letters C-R-O, crow, carved into a tree. Mm. When they finally got to the fort, like where where their whole setup was, they found the full word Croatoan carved into a post. Mm -hmm. Okay. They also found that they had like kind of fortified, re-fortified the fort while he'd been gone. So that kind of leads me to believe that there were there like the situation got more dangerous more or looked violence. more t- more touchy with the locals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they found CRO and then they also found the full word Croatoan. White took this to mean that they had relocated peacefully to Croatoan Island where where he had just been last night. White's wishful thinking really got the best. A of lot it of wishful thinking tradition. all around. Everyone yeah. suffered from horrific wishful thinking. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the wishful thinking. But they found that the houses had been dismantled, the trunks had been looted, including a trunk that he himself had left there with like his shit. Mm-hmm. So like someone looted all of their stuff. Mm-hmm. And the colonists' boats were gone. They couldn't mm-hmm. find the boats anywhere. There were there was no sign of the colony anywhere, and White ended up going back to England. Oh God, that sucks. And he never snip snap snip snap snip snap. And he never actually came back to try to find them again because he couldn't raise enough money for like a fourth trip or whatever. Well, it yeah, been. but also like he wouldn't have found them. Right. It was his daughter though. Like he wanted yeah. to go back. He just I'm didn't. Sure. He couldn't get the money to go back. But also, it was in Raleigh's best interest to keep the fate of the colonists unclear because if they weren't proven or declared dead, he technically still had claim to, like, the entire continent. Mm. Oh, right. He didn't want it to be officially failed. He wanted it to be a mystery. Yep, exactly. So there's that playing into this, too. So here are some theories as to what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. Obviously, disease, famine, storms, whatever. Mm -hmm. 
killed. Yeah, it was definitely like a, a an unruly area to colonize for sure in terms of like weather Hurricanes and just accessibility. And yeah. Yep. Killed by natives. They think they might have tried to sail back to England in their rickety boats and died. This would explain the disappearance of the boats themselves. Okay. Mm -hmm. And also why things might have looked like they were looted, but actually they were maybe like packed up smaller and taken with them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another theory, they were killed by the Spanish for their diamond mountain. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about. There would have been signs that they had just been like massacred in place. I agree. They wouldn't have been like buried. They're gone. Yeah. Their bodies are gone. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Also, they could have moved further inland and were absorbed into like a friendly local tribe or tribes. So mm. they just they just they just started living with them, started having children and generations with them, and then that, that was just that that's just where they went. Yeah, like mm-hmm. please help me. I'm starving and sick mm. and like half of us or more are dead and like mm. can I live with you now? And also they were relatively friendly with quite a few of these tribes so mm-hmm. yeah that's not out of the realm of possibility no and a lot of archaeologists today say that this is the most likely scenario hmm. mm. this theory is also bolstered by reports from john smith's expedition that was just 17 years later that there was a rumor about an inland tribe whose men wore european style clothing and built walled houses Like more European style. So you can see some of the combination of culture. Again, cross pollination of culture, potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Devil's advocate, though, it's also possible that, like, they didn't actually have to be absorbed into another tribe for some of those cross cultural things to. For sure. Absolutely. Seep over, especially if, like, they all died. Say they all died of natural causes. Mm -hmm. Like, the Native Americans aren't going to use those resources that were left behind. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And then take a look maybe at the houses and be like, I don't know, we'll try this. You know, they've already chopped down all these trees. I guess we'll, like, take these logs. Mm-hmm. I think the architecture aspect is less likely that they just adopt that. It's less likely than the clothing. Also, that doesn't explain their remains not being anywhere. It was just three years. That's true. Mm-hmm. Modern climatologists have concluded that there was a significant drought between 1587 and 1589, which would have affected the food supply. So maybe starvation. Mm. Also, then, also again, maybe where just are the relocation because of starvation. Mm-hmm. They could have attempted to relocate to their original destination of Chesapeake Bay and were killed in a Powhatan attack. Also, there were rumors of a secret conspiracy against Raleigh that the colonists were actually separatists and that Mariner who ditched them on Roanoke in the first place was trying to undermine Raleigh in an attempt to further certain parties' agenda to make England a Protestant world power. Mm. So basically, the theory was that he ditched them in Roanoke so that the expedition would fail, so that Raleigh would fail, so that England would be this Protestant superpower. I I don't get that because Elizabeth was Protestant. But okay. I don't know. Whatever. Weird. Okay. There's also a tree on uh, Croatoan slash Hatteras Island that has the letters C-O-R-A carved into it, like today. Mm. There's Mm -hmm. a photo of it, which will be on the blog. Cora might indicate that the colonists left Croatoan Island to settle with the Cori tribe, also known as the Coranine, 
on the mainland li- near Lake Matamasquite. But, okay. but there's no way to date this tree because it's really damaged because of, like, lightning strikes and shit. Oh, okay. So that's inconclusive. Also, like, just because people carved some letters into a tree doesn't necessarily mean that they were signaling where they were heading to. Yeah. I you know? also feel like a tree, specifically that species of tree, is not known for its longevity. So it might not have even been around at that so time. So I doubt, I doubt that that tree is, like, almost 500 years old. Mm-hmm. Right. 450 years what old. What about the first one, though? First what? The croa. The tree carving. Oh, yeah. You're saying both of them you don't think are relevant? No, those ones were reported by John White when he got there. This Cora tree exists today. Oh, yeah. No, that'd be tough to still be around. Okay. Also, in 2012, researchers were examining a map at the British Museum that White himself had painted of the Elizabethan era United States. Hidden in invisible ink. Oh, it's urine. (laughs) Presumably to guard information about the colonies from the Spanish were the outlines of two forts, one Mm. 50 miles west of Roanoke, which is the same distance away that the colonists had told White that they planned to move. So before he left, they were like, well... If we move, we're going to move west. 50, 50 miles west, like specifically. And he didn't go there when he came to visit. I think he okay. did. I don't know. There's no reason why he wouldn't have. The same distance away, yeah, that they had planned to move according to what he wrote. So archaeologists have dug up what they called Site X and Site Y, finding European pot fragments suggesting long-term inhabitants but they aren't sure of the dates of these shards, so they aren't sure who to associate them with. Okay. Because obviously at some point there were long-term European settlers Right. Everywhere. Sure. This could have been from 30 years later. Yep. Mm-hmm. After the and, mystery uh, had already relevant. taken place. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So last but not least, my that favorite. Means that's like such an interesting element, too, where like this mystery took place in such a small period of time mm-hmm. that it makes it so much harder to solve that mystery because yeah like you just said the stuff that they find could have been from an era right throughout that time and this was such a tiny little time frame mm-hmm. within that era that it's like how and do we even know these belong use to them pottery that you know they uh, that's exactly. handed down for generations or they exactly. try to keep it going you know mm-hmm. yep exactly so very very weird last but not least we have the dare stones so remember mm-hmm. Eleanor's last name was Dare. Mm -hmm. This was a series of stones inscribed with messages supposedly left by members of the colony found in various places around the area in the 1930s. Mm. A total of 48 Dare stones are cataloged at Breno University in Gainesville, Georgia, although additional stones were also reported. Nearly all of the inscriptions in the Breno collection purport to be messages from Eleanor Dare to her father, John White. Taken together, the messages compose a narrative describing the fate of the missing colonists between 1591 and 1603, in which they are said to have migrated from Roanoke to the Chattahoochee River Valley near present-day Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, my gosh. In September 1587. So the first stone was reported in 1937 and alluded to a mass grave nearby. 
So a reward was offered to find more stones and more information about this grave. And then some stone cutter (gasps) made 47 more stones to my personal dismay, which were proven (laughs) to be a hoax. Yeah, that's an asshole move. Mm-hmm. But there's still the one stone, the first stone. So here's some. Here's what was written on it, and the stone was 21 pounds. It's just a, it's a rock, basically. Mm. So this is what was written on it: Ananias Dare and Virginia went hence to heaven, 1591. Any Englishman show this rock to John White, governor of Virginia. And then on the other side, it says. Father, soon after you go for England, we came here, only misery and war for two years, above half dead these two years, more from sickness, being 24. Mm. A savage with a message of a ship came to us. Within a small space of time, they became frightened of revenge and ran all away. We believe it was not you. Soon after, the savages said spirits were angry. Suddenly, they murdered all save seven, all except seven. Mm -hmm. My child and Ananias, too, were slain with much misery, buried all near four miles east of this river upon a small hill. So that's like the mass grave that they were, that this alluded to. Names were written all there on a rock. Put this there also. If a savage shows this to you, we promise you would give them great plenty presents. EWD. Wow. This was written in Elizabethan orthography. Okay. So like the V's instead of the U's and shit like Mm -hmm. that. It looked right. It looked right. And the settlers would have had the necessary tools to carve it. Mm. So I'm personally choosing to believe that this first stone was real. Mm-hmm. One thing that we do know, the experiences from these first colonies informed the Jamestown colony, who I mentioned, John Smith, that settled to the north just 17 years later. Mm-hmm. We also know that the Jamestown colonists ate each other on at least one occasion during their starving time, and that is its own episode. Mm-hmm. But basically, times were tough. Don't colonize. Don't colonize. Yeah. And also, we still don't Says know the white what happened. Kentucky from Minnesota. <laughs> We right. still don't know what happened to the last colony of Roanoke. And wow. I love this stone thing. The and stone. There's just so many. Yeah. I hadn't heard about the stone. I hadn't heard about a lot of this because I just like have not looked deeply into this story. But it was like a season of American Horror Story. So like, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Yeah. Spooksters. I love that's it. wild. Yeah. Very weird. That's my macabre I, mystery. Don't. But like they've that. never found a mass grave. No. Weird. Not yet. Mm. Uh, not yet. Well, King Richard was buried under a fucking car parking lot mm-hmm. somewhere in England. Paved King Richard and put a parking lot. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Paved anywhere. King Richard and put up a parking lot. <laughs> you never know. All right. Yeah. Well, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors as long let's as we don't do get it. sidetracked for three years. across the Atlantic. That's basically what this entire podcast experience has been. You're almost there, sweetie. Y'all, we have enough to worry about, okay? We've got a lot on our plates. We've got a lot on our minds. We've got a lot on our armpits. So nobody needs BO on top of all of that. And that is why we are so excited to talk to you about Lumi Whole Body Deodorant. 
It is clinically proven to control odor everywhere on your body. You got pits, you got privates, you got beyond. Mm-hmm. And it's the gonna crook control of your elbow. Crook of Under your boob. elbow. Top oh. crack. Thighs. Top it's crack. summer. Thighs. Yeah, everywhere sweats, you know? And this will help you out for a whopping 72 hours. That's a lot of episodes of Wine and Crime, okay? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the founder of Lumi is an OBGYN. So Dr. Shannon Klingman met thousands of people concerned with odor below the belt. And through clinical testing, she found it wasn't the vag to blame, people. It's bacteria on the skin. So mm-hmm. get it right. So she created Lumi, a skin-safe, aluminum-free deodorant that actually works, and it works everywhere it has over a hundred fifty thousand five-star reviews to prove it and new customers get five dollars off lumi starter pack with code gals at lumideodorant.com i don't know what you're waiting for i am obsessed with lumi i woke up this morning and i got a whiff of my pits but i had just showered like two days prior and it is not a wash day for this hair i'm not i shouldn't be that ripe yet So I was like, no, I'm not getting in the shower. I'm not washing this hair. I'm not doing it. I'm not risking that color. I went for my deodorant wipes. Mm -hmm. I cleaned my pits up a little bit before putting on my Lumi. I have like the coconut deodorant. Yes. I smell amazing. All Mm -hmm. all the odor is completely gone. I smell like I just washed. I wiped myself down on my long uh, plane ride back from vacation. Sure did. Arrived feeling fresh as a daisy. Mm -hmm. I also love, like you said, that it's created by an OBGYN and it's pH balanced Mm -hmm. for safe use below the belt. That is so important, especially if you got sensitive nethers. Yep. And like you said, aluminum free, also baking soda free and paraben free. Mm -hmm. Love it. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, you know, the tradish. Mm-hmm. Also a cream tube deodorant for the everywhere portion. Mm-hmm. Two free products of your choice, such as a mini body wash and deodorant wipes. We love the Get wipes. Get the wipes. Get the yeah. wipes. And free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code GALS, G-A-L-S, at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com. Lumi is L-U-M-E, deodorant.com. And use code GALS and treat your scent. Treat All right. Well, are we ready for my case? It's very different. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I guess there are like woods. Sure. <laughs> That's like the one. The similarities are mind Is a similarity. Okay. 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 So Glenna Susan, who went by Sue uh, Sharp, lived in Connecticut with her five children, Johnny, 15, Sheila, 14, Tina, 12, Rick, 10, and Greg, 5. Too many mm-hmm. kids. So you're, there are going to be a lot of names in this case, and I'm going to try my best to like help you keep track of everybody. But you Just do kind sure. of have to Child keep track of, of them. Yeah. Okay. So she has, you know, kids r- ranging in age from 15 to five. Okay. Uh, That's a lot. Of, you know, three boys and two girls. Okay. No thanks. Okay. And her husband James Sharp. So living in Connecticut, but James was an abusive 
piece of shit. And Mm -hmm. so Sue decides to get the fuck out and they separate and she moves along with all her kids to Northern California in July 1979. Okay, so this is the the 70s. Late 70s, early 80s. Case takes place in the early 80s. Okay. So they're moving west. They're starting fresh. She's got all her kids. She's away from her abusive piece of shit husband and she's moving to California. Clear across the country. Bye-bye. To the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. Mm, it's right over there. Couldn't have been Real that hard. Close. Connecticut so, to California, apparently super close. You can walk. The U.S. is a super thin strip. Yeah. It's not a big deal. It's yeah. a peninsula. Fucking calm down. First, she, you know, carves California in a tree so everybody knows <laughs> where tree. she's going. No. Just Cal. C-A-L. C-A-L. <laughs> and that was plenty. No, okay, so uh, her brother Don was living out in California in a town called Quincy, and he was living in a sort of trailer in like a pretty remote area, but he moved out of it so that Sue and the kids could live there temporarily while they got back on their feet when she's like leaving this abusive marriage. Nice. Mm -hmm. Quote, Sue, eager to get her life together and find a way to support herself and her children, began taking typewriting classes and working a part-time job at the Quincy Elks Lodge. Stop it! Oh my god! It's like a Mary Chapin Carpenter song. Oh, so (laughs) but six people can't really live comfortably in a small trailer. No. So as soon as they could, the Sharps moved to a resort area in the Sierra Nevada mountains that was like 10 miles away. Mm -hmm. They had a small cabin slash house that had just become available in the town of Keddy. Keddy was an old railroad depot town, and today it has a population of 66 people. So I'm guessing there were even fewer back then. (gasps) Wow. Jesus. Okay. Basically, there are all these like kind of run down cabins in an area that used to be like a resort area. Sure. But now it's been converted to like low income kind of rural housing in the woods. It used to be dirty dancing and now it's Jersey dancing. Not quite. (laughs) (laughs) There are pictures on the drive of of these cabins. Kind of looks a little bit like the house I grew up in a little bit. But it's okay, like, but that's like dirty dancing, the little summer cottages on the lake. Little summer cottages yeah. that are a little run yeah. down. And um, this doesn't look anything like your house. No, but from the front a little bit. Okay. A cottage. It's a co- Yeah. Your house was way cute. My house was super cute. I didn't mean it. I just, whatever. It's fine. So, <laughs> fuck you, Don Shelby. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at least the new home was uh, much larger than the trailer. And mm-hmm. uh, it actually had become available because the local sheriff at the time had just moved out. So on the early afternoon of April 11th, 1981, 36-year-old Sue, 14-year-old Sheila, and 5-year-old Greg drove from their friend's house to go pick up the 10-year-old Rick from his baseball tryouts in Quincy. Mm-hmm. Okay? As they're driving, they come across their brother, John, 15, Mm. and his friend, Dana Hall Wingate, who is 17. Note here, Dana is a boy. Okay. So the mom and some of the kids are going to pick up another kid at his baseball tryouts. And on the way, they run into her oldest kid and his friend hanging out. Trying like to on the road? Oh, yeah, they're like hitchhiking okay. back and forth between these two towns, yep. Quincy and Keddie. Got it. 
they were hitchhiking from the mouth of the canyon in Quincy back to Keddie, which is about a 10-minute drive. And this is something that they, they did all the time. Mm-hmm. So Sue, hashtag such a mom, picks up her son and his friend and then drives them back home. Like, you're hitchhiking and your mom picks you up. Yeah. How, how great. Yep. Different times. Yeah. Roll different. So around 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhike back to Quincy because they had plans to hang out with their friends downtown. And witnesses saw them in Quincy doing the hanging out that afternoon. Mm -hmm. So they made it. That evening, the youngest boys, Rick and Greg, so the 10-year-old and the 5-year-old, are allowed to have a sleepover. They're allowed to have their friend Justin Smart Eason, who lived, he was like a neighbor boy, sleepover. He lived close by with his mother, Marilyn, and his stepfather, Martin Smart. And smart is spelled with two T's. Smart. Smart. Martitin, smartitin. Martitin, smartitin. Martitin, smartitin. There's going to be more about martitin, smartitin later on. I thought as much. Okay. So, meanwhile, Sheila, the oldest daughter, had planned a sleepover at her friend's house, the Seabolts, a few lots over or maybe next door. I've read both reports. So, this is starting to sound a lot like me going off to have sex with my boyfriend and telling people all the different places I was sleeping over where I wasn't actually It sounds, over. when you write it out, it sounds a lot more confusing than it was. Yep. Basically, the girls were like, it was, you know, like, okay, sleepover time. Sheila yep, wants we're to doing s- our thing here. Sheila wants to sleep over at her friend's house at the Seabolts. The boys mm-hmm. are going to have their friend over to their house for a sleepover. Yep. Yeah. You know, and the oldest kid, the teenager, is off, you know, hanging out with his friend, you know, whatever. Doing their thing. Doing their thing. Mm-hmm. And this is all in the small town. All within mm-hmm. these two small towns that are 10 minutes drive from each other. Okay. And, but the sleepovers are all within this keddy, very small yep. area. All these basically just different, like, cabin houses. Got it. And they okay. all still actually had numbers. So they lived in number 28. Aw. And they had friends in, like, number 16 and number whatever. That's cute. Cute. Yeah. So Sheila, the oldest daughter, leaves her house around 8 p.m. and walks over to the Seabolt's house. Mm -hmm. And Tina, the other daughter, was 12. She was already at the Seabolt's at that time watching TV and hanging out. And Sheila gets there and she's like, Mom wants you home. Like, leave us alone. Okay. Leave us alone. Uh. You can't be here for our sleepover. Go home. Mm -hmm. That is a big sister thing to do. Right. (laughs) So Tina, 12, walks the very short distance back home at around 10 p.m. and goes back to her house. So at 7 a.m. the next day, the morning of April 12th, Sheila, the 14-year-old, leaves the seatbelt. She had her sleepover. It's the next morning. She goes back to her house and to her unimaginable horror was greeted by the bodies of her mother, her older brother, John, and John's friend, Dana, all dead. (gasps) Oh, shit. Okay. What about the little boys? We will get to it. Oh, no. So the murders had been especially vicious. Blood was everywhere. Oh, Jesus. There were knife marks across the walls. Ew, ew. There was like a, I read some reports said like a butter knife. There there was like some kind of knife. To me, it looked like more than a butter knife. But some kind of knife like half jammed in the floor. No. Oh. No, I don't like so that. So just a frenzy. 
Yeah. It's very gross. Messy. Messy, messy. Mm -hmm. Couch cushions off the couch and blood stained. And all three had been bound with medical tape and electrical cords. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Oh, my God. Two bloody knives. The electrical cords uh, feel like. That's what was there. Convenience. Like that was what was there. Yeah. The medical tape tape is is weird. weird. I mean, it also could have been found at the scene if they had, like, a first aid kit or something. I suppose, but it seems like a lot. Oh, yeah. You'd need a lot of tape, because medical tape is, like, easy to tear and right. the, intentionally. And a little, little sample roll. Right. So you'd need kind of a lot of to, it to, to truly bind someone bind with Bind three it. people. Yeah. And, and they were all basically adults. I mean, John was 15. Yeah, but- it's ad. I, I don't get it. I don't like it. Two bloody knives and a bloody hammer were found on the scene. Yikes. Sue was found lying in the living room, nude from the waist down, but no other signs of sexual assault were detected. Mm. So either she was like made to look like Mm -hmm. she was sexually assaulted or someone was interrupted or. Yeah, yeah. She'd been gagged with a bandana and her own underwear, like shoved in her Ugh. mouth, and then her Ugh. mouth taped over with duct tape. Ugh. Fucking yuck. God. She'd been stabbed through her larynx so deep it actually nicked her spine. No. Ugh. No. This is disgusting. Yes. John's throat was slashed, and Dana had multiple head injuries. They think from the hammer, the like, yeah, I don't know if it was a claw or ball hammer. I don't know types of hammers, Uh, Mm -hmm. a hammer, uh, probably like right here ish Mm -hmm. area and had also been strangled to death. But Tina, the 12 year old, was nowhere to be found. Oh, God. And the sheets on her bed were bloodstained, but they found out later forensically that this was not her blood. Okay. But probably from the killers getting so much blood on them from yep. stabbing Sue and, you know, John and Dana. Maybe mm-hmm. it happened at 10. She she saw it from outside the window and she ran away. Mm-hmm. She probably wouldn't have waited till the next morning to find her sister, though. That's not what happened. And mm-hmm. we know okay. that now. But yeah. could- All right. This one is actually solved. <laughs> it's not really solved, but we do know that that did not happen. Okay. Mm-hmm. Bizarrely, the youngest boys, so Rick and Greg and their friend Justin, were there in the other room unharmed, in the bedroom, in the bunk bed, sleeping. Oh, sleeping? What? Mm-hmm. That's almost the weirdest detail. Mm-hmm. God. And how did they not wake up with how violent and horrific? I mean, I know I'm a heavy sleeper, but. Maybe the TV was on. They did just didn't hear it. Uh, I don't know. That seems very weird. So obviously Sheila is in shock, but she bolts back to her friend's house. And Jamie Seabolt, I read some reports that he's the father, but actually I think he's the oldest son of that family, goes back with her. She's, you know, she goes back and is like, oh, my fucking God, mm-hmm. my family, whatever. And then by the time she gets there, she's like, shit, the boys, like, where are the boys? Where's Tina? You know, like she doesn't know yet. Mm-hmm. And so Jamie Siebel goes back with her to like see what the fuck's going on. And they Oof. they peek into the boys' bedroom window and they saw that Rick, Greg, and Justin were sleeping safe and sound. And so they woke them up and had them climb out through the bedroom window out of the cabin they so that they see it. So they wouldn't have to witness the crime oh, scene in the living room. God. Yikes. 
Oh, that's sad. And later on, Jamie Siebel also admitted that he walked into the house through the back door, which contaminated some of the crime scene. But like, I think he had to see for himself. You're probably not thinking about that. What had happened. Like, he might have done that first, honestly, and then been like, oh, my fucking God. And then went out around the back and saw, sure, looked in through the window. That's also kind of a hard scene to not contaminate if there's like blood and shit everywhere. Everywhere. Right. Yeah. Everything you touch, everything you step on is part of the crime scene. Right. Mm -hmm. So after interviewing all of the neighbors, few clues surfaced. There was some unhelpful speculation that the crimes might have been ritualistic or drug related because, again, it's like the early 80s. Satanic panic. Right. Um, And also like one friend of the family claimed that John's friend Dana, who was 17, had stolen LSD from local drug dealers, but she wasn't able to give any proof of this claim. Mm. Um, And also it just seems almost too violent to be that i don't know was it kind it of like a add up to me kind of like a lower socioeconomic area too yes yes mm-hmm. so that probably adds to both of those rumors this, like the mm-hmm. stigma like oh it was like drug related or whatever yeah right. mm-hmm. could be or people who live in a trailer right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the police did look into these claims extensively and supposedly they spent like 4000 man hours following it up but it led nowhere. The Seabolts said that they had seen a green van parked at the Sharps house at around 9 p.m. that night, but both Sheila and the Seabolt family said that they didn't hear anything out of the ordinary that le- that night. Mm. However, a couple in a nearby cabin said that they woke up briefly around 1:15 a.m. Because they'd heard what they thought might be muffled screaming, but they weren't totally they weren't totally sure at the time. The noise ended quickly, and then they'd gone back to bed. So I could see I could see you being like, "Did I hear like?" Uh, No, I guess everything's fine. I'll go back to bed. Well, and if it's like a wooded area, you got fucking like dogs and coyotes and even like rabbits dying. Yeah, sounds like a child screaming or people watching TV. Mm Hmm. Or mm-hmm. you think you might might have been dreaming and you wake up mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, it stopped. Conk back it out. It was in my dream. Yeah. Right. But when Martin Smart, Justin's stepdad, claimed that a claw hammer had gone missing from his house, he unwittingly mm. became the prime suspect. Mm. The murder weapons hadn't yet been disclosed to the public. So the fact that mm. he mentioned a missing a hammer, hammer. Specifically. Who notices a missing hammer? That's a little shady. That's Ooh. definitely a little shady. Not so smart. To I t- wouldn't. No. Not so smart. To t- Apparently, investigators felt that Martin was maybe being a little too helpful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sharon- oh, weird. A murder weapon that no one's mentioned is actually curiously missing from my toolbox. I just wanted to let you guys know that that I don't have a hammer because it is right. missing. Right. <laughs> okay, Martin. So Sheriff Thomas said later that Martin had given the police, quote, endless clues in the case, which may have been an effort to throw suspicion away from himself. What? But Martin took a polygraph test and passed. This is why you never help the cops, because it's going to look sus no matter what. Mm -hmm. Also, polygraphs Don't talk to the police. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if you... It is shady. If you think Martin is innocent, I mean... Put yourself in his shoes. His stepson was yep. there somehow unharmed. These are his neighbors and friends. He's trying to help. Right. If you yeah. think he's guilty. He's offering too much information. It's sketchy. Yeah. 
I totally get it. Right? He could have also been one of those people who has like, like the pegboards in your garage. And then you know Mm -hmm. how like old men will like outline every tool to put it back where it goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it'd be obvious that he was missing a hammer because of the organization. Could have been. Could have been. Could have been. Maybe. Could have been. I would not notice a missing hammer, but I would notice like my missing good scissors. For sure. Oh, yeah. So if you use all the time, maybe right. he uses his hammer all the time. Right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So Justin, the friend that stayed over but was unharmed, gave different reports of the night. First, he said that he'd like slept through the whole thing. Then later, he's, he was having like nightmares about the murders. And then he said mm. that he'd seen the murders. Mm. But he's like, is this like an eight-year-old? Yeah, he's like a a 10-year-old, I think. Yeah. So him changing his story is not nearly as suspicious as like an adult was doing it. He didn't do it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. No, but it's not like weird, I guess. As weird. He also, like, if he was in fact sleeping through these murders... And his subconscious is hearing, but also his subconscious is hearing, and maybe his brain is in his dreams putting together like some scenario... Sure. He sure, could have been a the, crazy dreamer like I am. I can see that happening. Or, you know, he has these nightmares later on because, like, he he knows that these people got murdered, even if he didn't mm-hmm. see it happen. Yeah. You're yeah. going to have nightmares. You're going to mm-hmm. hear things that the adults are saying. Right. But he provides more details when he's under hypnosis, yes. saying that sounds woke him up in the middle of the night. And while Greg and Rick were still sleeping, he'd left the bedroom and saw Sue Sharp with two men, one with long hair and the other with short hair and a mustache, both wearing glasses. Hmm. Justin further claimed under hypnosis that John and Dana came into the room and started arguing with the two men. And then Tina came into the room and was whisked out of the cabin's back door by one of the men. Mm. Oh. So is Tina the the 12-year-old? The one who mm-hmm. came? Who's missing. Who's missing. Okay. Yeah. She'd come home and then the, it sounds like she like made it home because it's a short walk and she went at 10 p.m. And this was in the middle of the night. Got it. Mm-hmm. Justin's description of the men was given to a man named Harlan Embry to make a composite sketch. Embry sometimes volunteered to help local police, but he was an untrained and by all accounts, talentless artist. (laughs) Oh, God. So go look at this. Give it to that guy. No, give it an amateur sketch. This is an amateur sketch of the two suspects. (laughs) This amateur sketch. Oh, no. I mean, it's like. No. It's like what I could achieve, which is a talentless, useless, didn't even attempt the eyes. This is rough. I mean, you can kind of get some information from this. I like it. I'm adding the leprechaun amateur sketch to your drive. Yeah. People, most people would do worse, I would say. Right. You got, Mm. you can... Like bone structure, Adam's apple. Yeah, but why was Mustache. this guy given in charge? Well, this responsibility. That's a great question. <laughs> this is amazing. So no one from the investigation has ever explained why police decided to go with Embry instead of you know an actual fucking professional <laughs> sketch artist for this horrific triple homicide and child abduction. Like oh, they shit. they couldn't have gotten the real yeah. thing. Use any addition like any real resources we'll please. give this guy a go 
Yeah. 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 I mean, it's probably because this is in a fucking poor community. Mm-hmm. And so they don't give a fuck. Yep. Yep. So at first, Tina's disappearance was investigated as an abduction because we don't have any evidence that she is dead. Mm-hmm. But on April 22nd, 1984, three years after the murders, a bottle collector found a portion of a human skull and part of a mandible mm-hmm. about 80 to 100 miles outside of Keddie. Oh, whoa. That's a long ways away. Yikes. Okay. Shortly Basically after at the Pacific Ocean. Basically. Basically. Middle of the ocean. <laughs> the other side Actually, of the Atlantic. country. Yeah. Back, wow. back the other way. Right. So shortly after this discovery, an anonymous call came to the county Mm. sheriff's office speculating that these remains might belong to Tina. Do you guys want to do uh, voices? (gasps) Yes. We have caller and we have dispatcher. I want to be dispatcher. (laughs) So I'm caller? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hello. I was watching the news and they were talking about the skull they found at the Feather Falls and they asked for any help. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And I was just wondering if they thought of the murder up in Keddie up in Plumas County a couple years ago where a 12-year-old girl was never found. Uh-huh. Well <laughs> <laughs> <Still> done. <laughs> it's the part I was born to play, baby. He's wow. trying to be anonymous. <laughs> anonymous, maybe vaguely French. Yeah. Wee <laughs> wee. Oui, oui. Oh, Lord, I found say how you say Mandy Blue? <laughs> Sacre Bleu. It's a Mandy Blue. Blue. <laughs> so this quite helpful anonymous caller was never identified. And somehow this phone call was never entered into evidence. Of course not. The fuck. God. The remains were confirmed to be Tina's in June 1984. Oh, oh poor thing. 12 years old. Yep. Keddie cabin number 28, and these this has become known as the Keddie cabin murders, mm-hmm. was demolished in 2004 without any arrests or new leads. Yikes. After 27 years, the case had understandably grown cold, but that doesn't mean no new leads had developed. Ooh. Okay. In 2008, Marilyn Smart... Martin's now ex-wife was interviewed for a documentary about the murders and said that she suspected her husband and his friend John Bobeed, known as Bo. Why does this remind me of Creed in the office when he's the manager and he's making the acronyms and he's like, Bo Body, Bo Body. No, no one. Don't um, know that. That one over my that head. One. God, why aren't you guys as obsessed as I am? I <laughs> why doesn't our mental illness manifest exactly the same way as yours? <laughs> I will upload more photos to the drive. Okay. Of Creed. So, so, <laughs> of Creed. So Marilyn thinks that it's Martin, her ex-husband, and his friend John Bo Bobied. Bo Body. Bo Body. Bo Crimes. Um, Bo was a veteran with PTSD issues. He also purportedly had connections to the Chicago mob and Who maybe doesn't? a little. <laughs> I mean, Chicago's same. a big place. <laughs> maybe a little unrequited crush on Sue Sharp. I read some somewhere that he had like asked Sue out a couple times and she had turned him down. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not looking at Creed right now. (laughs) (laughs) So Marilyn said that on April 11th, 1981, the night of the murders, she left Martin and Bo at a local bar around 11 p.m. And she went home and went to bed. Because, again, her son Justin is sleeping over at the Sharps. So she can Mm -hmm. go to the bar and then go home and go to bed. But she'd woken at 2 in the morning to find them both in her kitchen burning an unknown item on the stove. That's not good. Ooh. But but also maybe they like just in a came... pot or just like on the in the open. I think in the open fire flame. on the stove. Ugh. Okay, okay. Because they don't have like a fireplace, you know. So yeah. if they want to burn something, they gotta burn it on the gas stove. And it's in the privacy of their own home. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. she also said that Martin had hated Johnny Sharp with a passion. Johnny is the fifteen-year-old, the oldest son, who hates it. Grow up. So I. I I wrote, like, why would an adult hate a teenage kid with a passion? Like, he Mm -hmm. doesn't, I don't know. Hmm. Weird. Weird and sad. So the case gets revisited around 2016, in part because it hits really close to home with the new sheriff, Greg Hagwood. He was actually classmates with Johnny Sharp and Dana Wingate, and the three had worked together as house painters the summer before John and Dana were murdered. How wholesome. And now he's like a grown ass man and the sheriff. So he's like, I'm going to open this case back up. Wow. Mm -hmm. Tina was also a student of Hagwood's mother. So like he had all these connections to the case. Hagwood hires a former deputy, Mike Gamberg, as a special investigator. Gamberg had been fired two weeks before the murders due to his, quote, contentious personality. (laughs) (laughs) But he was later reinstated. He basically just like pissed off a lot of his superiors and like kept getting fired but it's like a rural area and he's trained and they need the workers so then he would get rehired and then he'd piss off the new sheriff and get fired again amazing Mm -hmm. (laughs) i like that pattern i think he also like taught karate to like one of the kids at some point in the past whatever Mm. (laughs) so he was not as a movie trope (laughs) yeah he was not involved in the original investigation So Gamberg and Hagwood took over a small room in the sheriff's offices and started to go through all the evidence with fresh eyes. And it quickly became clear to them that the investigation in the 80s was super fucking botched. They also now have a lot of tools that were that were not available back then. So like obviously DNA, high tech voice analysis. So I think they could actually do like voice analysis on the collar and be like, sacre bleu. The anonymous uh, caller was French. No, it wasn't at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was probably. Uh, we, we knew it. <laughs> it was uh, pr- probably Martin uh, Smart, but we will get to it. Smart. <laughs> also online chat groups so they can kind of like track and monitor like rumors and gossip at the time mm-hmm. and whatever. So they followed up on Marilyn Smart's suspicions and found key evidence that could corroborate her theory. Witnesses confirmed that Martin, Smart, and Bo were at a bar that evening, but that they were wearing glasses and three-piece mm. suits and, quote, acting weird. Like the amateur sketch. Three-piece suits? That's so That's odd. So Bill got for the wedding a three-piece suit. But, like, it was a very out of character for these two guys. Yeah. I mean, I guess Bo would wear suits because he kind of thought he was, like, a gangster, but... Yeah. Both men had criminal records and Bo, again, had ties to organized crime. Marilyn Smart was also friends with Sue and Sue, we remember, had experience leaving an abusive husband. Right. 
she might have helped. And apparently she was counseling Marilyn at the time to leave Martin potentially. Should make her a target for sure. Potentially over his physical abuse. Mm-hmm. How dare you help my woman leave me? Yep. Yep. Ew. I mean, that's not. That's quite common. An uncommon thing. Yeah. yeah. So there's speculation that Martin found out about this and got his friend Bo, who was like a known mob enforcer dude, to get rid of Sue. And then the John and Dana and Tina were in the wrong place at the wrong time and witnessed it, right? Or just like collateral Mm. damage. I also read some rumors that Martin might have been having an affair with Sue, but considering that she was helping Marilyn leave him due to his abuse, like I doubt this. I think that's just like rumor mill stuff. Mm. anytime a young woman dies, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, Bo had just recently moved in with Martin and Marilyn 10 days before the murder, so it seemed a little, like, the timing premeditated. Like, what are you doing here? Mm Sauce. And this theory makes a lot of other pieces about the case fall into place. So it explains why the youngest boys, Rick, Greg, and Martin's stepson, Justin, were spared that night. Mm -hmm. Why... Justin was maybe unclear about what he'd witnessed that night, not wanting Mm -hmm. to say if he saw. Because he knew who it was. Because it might have been his stepdad and stepdad's friend. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense. Right? But the one who got hammered was not the one that Martin hated, right? No. But the one that he hated died. But he wasn't, yeah. he wasn't hit with the hammer. I was just thinking the hammer would be the the passion-y one. Right. Mm. But Dana was older, maybe bigger, maybe more of a threat. Fought back more. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it tracks that Marilyn left Martin right after the murders, and he moved to Reno almost immediately. Weird. Mm-hmm. I got to get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. It's heating up. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you make of this letter that Martin sent Marilyn shortly thereafter from fucking Reno. Oh, no. The three-page letter discussed the difficulties in their marriage, but in it he wrote, quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. Okay, that's a confession. Jesus. Sorry, that's a confession. That's enough. To Some bring him in. fucking how this letter was overlooked by investigators in the 80s and what never listed fuck? as evidence. Oh, my Come God. On. It's evidence. It's a confession. It's a veiled confession, but it's enough, like Lucy said, for further investigation into this person. Jesus. They believe that the letter was referring to Martin's four children by a previous marriage that he'd no. left in order to be with Marilyn and her kids. No. Then bring him in and question him Mm -hmm. and investigate him and have him prove that. Don't use your own fucking theories to just dismiss this person. And if that is what it is, it's the the language of saying saying four people's lives. Four people's lives, not I left my four kids for you. Right. He's not saying children and he's saying like lives, like they don't have lives anymore. I left my four kids who are still very much alive in another state. No. I can't. That's bullshit. Yeah. Wow. They just ignored that. Yep. The fuck? Mm -hmm. Oh, and did I mention that Martin also confessed to a VA counselor in Reno, but no report was written? What? Cool. He admitted to the murder. So hard. He admitted to the murders of Sue and Tina, but claimed that he, quote, didn't have anything to do with the boys. Yeah. Oh, 
Uh, oh, they sure. were killed by someone else at the same time. On the time. same night, in the same, in a similar way. Weird, I know. It wasn't me. Yeah. When they got me on the counter, yeah. it wasn't me. It was fucking Bo. Saw me hammering on the sofa. Heck. It wasn't me. He also God. said that he, quote, had to kill Tina to prevent her from identifying him because she witnessed the whole thing. Oh, oh yeah. I hate him. Martin he did it. Martin Smart died in 2006 of cancer in Portland, Oregon, and John Bobied died in 1988 in Chicago, hopefully Bo-bye. hopefully violently, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. But investigators are still working on this. They still think that they can like prove this definitively. Mm-hmm. Hagwood said, quote, we're convinced there is an individual out there somewhere who knows who did this and how and why. And they've also identified six people of interest who are alive and said that they, quote, know exactly where they are. Ooh, okay. Of um, the little girl's remains, was it only the portion of skull and mandible that were ever found? That's all. Uh, that's all I read uh, that was ever found. Yeah, that's so fucking sad. And they don't know oh how she died. I don't think they could figure it out from that little yeah bit. Well, if there was like a bullet hole in her skull or something like that. that, I suppose. Yeah, I think it was just a partial skull. So, mm. which also makes you wonder, like, was she dismembered or was this like? animals or something after she was found in a uh i don't know if it's a national park or whatever but in a forested area so very very well could have been dragged a some amount of right if she was picked at yeah and then a portion yeah she was definitely of her yeah yeah oh my god that's so fucked Mm -hmm. dang so yeah, so I know that this is maybe <laughs> less of a mystery than it's billed as. I chose it and was already like quite into the You weeds. were balls deep. I you was- texted us very upset yesterday, mm-hmm. being like, it might be solved. And you're like, we still want to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. But um, very macabre. Still still very macabre. And really bad. We, bad, bad. You bad, know, bad. we don't know. For sure, why we have a very strong, I think, theory, but damn, you don't know for mm-hmm. sure. Wow, weird. good job, weird, weird, weird. Yeah, well, I have less terror for you ahead, okay. so shall we take a quick that's still pretty bad, but not as bad as yours? Okay, okay, should we take a quick sponsor/slash mental health break yeah. and then hear my little mystery? Yes, yes, yes please. Okay. If you are one of the 54% of folks who trim down there, you gotta listen up. Below the belt shaving just got better, more comfortable, uh, safer, less Mm -hmm. nicky. Yeah, the safety is key. (laughs) I have an unruly downstairs. We need to keep it safe. (laughs) Thanks to the folks at Meridian. Meridian offers powerful trimmers that cut through even the coarsest hair, but are still gentle enough for your privates because, mm-hmm. you know, it uh, that's key. Yep. A comfortable shave below the belt with no nicks, cuts, or ingrowns. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is priceless. Yeah. Meridian trimmers are for men, women, neither, neither, both, anyone, and for any style, whether you prefer bare, a soft buzz, Mm-hmm. Or like a full bush, but, you know, within the boundaries. A I might test out landing strip later today. Ooh. Why have, not? Why not? I'm getting married. You have so much control with this trimmer. Your mm-hmm. bush and is your oyster. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's 
it's gentle. It really is. I've tried a lot of trimmers out there. I've had a lot of screaming ouch moments in the shower. <laughs> I've made a lot of mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes. Learn from my mistakes. Just, just start with Meridian. It's the best. This high-quality waterproof trimmer is fitted with a 6,000 RPM motor, safe ceramic blades, and an anti-nick shaving guard. But don't just take it from us. Meridian has over a thousand five-star reviews. So we've partnered with Meridian Grooming to grant you an extra 15% off your order using the coupon code GALS. Go to Meridian Grooming, that's M-E-R-I-D-I-A-N grooming.com and use the code GALS, G-A-L-S, for an exclusive 15% off. Get a better and safer below-the-belt trimming experience today and treat your nethers. Treat up. Okay, so this is definitely one of the weirdest fucking stories I've ever told. I, like, don't even really know how to give it a quippy intro, so I'm just going to dive in. Okay. Great. From Wikipedia, quote, The Overton Bridge is a Category B listed structure over the Overton Burn on the approaching road to Overton House near Dumbarton in West Dunbartonshire, Scotland. Good lord. Okay. Give it a rest. A ton of tons. So many tons. (laughs) It was completed in 1895 based on a design by the landscape architect H.E. Milner. And it's absolutely stunningly gorgeous. Go take a look at it on the drive slash this will be on the blog. But like, tell me this fucking bridge isn't haunted. Oh, so Scottish. (gasps) I love it. I've seen this bridge. Maybe. But if it is haunted, it seems to have a very specific target. Dogs. <gasps> yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, I have heard about this. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from the New York Times. Quote, residents of Dumbarton, which is northwest of Glasgow, began calling Overton a century-old bridge that stretches across a 50-foot gorge, the Dog Suicide Bridge. I hate it. Don't like it. <laughs> Don't like it. Nope. Piecing the history of these bizarre jumps together throughout history, researchers estimate that up to 600 dogs have jumped off of this bridge. What? With at least least 50 dying in the process. Because the bottom of the gorge is like, now there's like a trail under there, but for a long time it was like jagged rock. 600? So there's no river under it. No, it's not water down below. How high it's a gorge. is it? Or there's some feet? water, but not not enough to break. A it's fall. like not. It's not like a stream. It's just like an old empty gorge, like a rocky gorge. At one time, water carved that out, uh-huh. but there isn't like a, a functioning active. stream underneath anymore. And now they've put like a trail down there. I'm surprised that way most of those dogs survived a 50 foot plummet drop. Yeah, I know. Jesus, six, I would have freaked out at six. Nope, six hundred. Now, that very easily could be an inflated number because this is like historical tellings as well as like actual modern day It also hasn't existed that long. It's not like it's It was born in the, it was born, it was built in the 1800s. (laughs) Right, but it's it's not like it's medieval, you know. I suppose, but it's- For Scotland, it's not that long. No, it's young for Scotland, but it's like- Old enough for 600 dogs to jump off of it, clearly. Yes. Well, also, 1895 is barely the 1800s. It's a yes. lot of dogs oh. per year. That's a lot of dogs. Yeah. Um, And we are not really anywhere close to figuring out why the fuck these dogs are doing this. 
in a manner nearby that's like included in the property. The current tenant, Bob Hill, said he and his wife had seen several dogs suddenly dive off the bridge since they just moved to the property about 17 years ago. So like they could see it from happening from their window. Oh, my God. Stories indicate that while walking across the bridge with their beloved pets, the dogs suddenly go absolutely apeshit, yank away from their leashes if they're on one, which like reminded to leash your fucking dogs. Yeah. And then hurl themselves off of the bridge. Oh, my God. One local, a woman named Lottie McKinnon, recalls her pup, Bonnie, leaping on a walk one day. Quote, something overcame Bonnie as soon as we approached the bridge, Miss McKinnon said. Bonnie. At first, she froze, but then she became possessed by a strange energy and ran and jumped right off the parapet. I w- it was a miracle that she survived. Wow. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah, that's like a mod, like that's a modern example of this happening. Like she was interviewed and that's like in the New York Times from like within the last 10 years. So my theory at first was that like on the bridge above the gorge, there like there would be like a weird wind like resonance that would drive the dogs nuts and then they would jump mm. over. But if she wasn't even really on the bridge yet. Not yet. Wow. But there, there are theories. So why the fuck is this happening? Yeah. Looking at the location, there is a map on the drive for Kenyon. In the paranormal community, the area is considered a, quote, thin place. I got chills. Very creepy. So again, from the New York Times, quote, it is admittedly an odd term. One could be forgiven for thinking that thin places describe skinny nations like Chile or perhaps... The United States, <laughs> or perhaps cities populated by thin people like Los Angeles. <laughs> but no, thin places are much deeper than that. They are locales where the distance between heaven and earth collapses, mm-hmm. and we're able to catch glimpses of the divine or the transcendent, or as I like to think of it, the infinite whatever. Mm-hmm. So they're just, basically thin places are like areas of high paranormal activity, like a gateway area. It's yeah. platform nine and three quarters. Exactly. Ugh. I love so it. some believe, including local, he's like a professor and he's a historian. He he like has credentials, but also I think he might be cuckoo bananas. He his name is Paul Owens. He wrote an entire fucking book about this mysterious bridge. And his theory is that there are ghosts that reside in this particular thin place mm-hmm. and lure dogs over the edge of the bridge. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the dogs 11, are leaping toward something they're not fleeing something behind them and we'll kind of get to that as well like it is a specific spot Hmm. almost every single time it's the same side of the bridge Mm -hmm. quote after 11 years of research i'm convinced it's a ghost that is behind all of this he declared and he's not the only one Many local residents report seeing an apparition that they call the White Lady, and there is a photo on the drive, potentially, of the White Lady. (gasps) She's believed to be the grieving widow of John White, son of James White, who built the structure in 1895. Is this the second John White (laughs) in this episode? (laughs) Oh, my God, it totally is. Although that's the only mention of John White. John White just happens to be the one who built the bridge. 
Well, but yeah, that is weird. That's important. We always have these like weird parallels, even when our stories are absolutely completely different from each other. It's very strange. Mm -hmm. Quote, the lady lived alone in grief for more than 30 years after her husband died in 1908, said Marion Murray, a local resident. Her ghost has been lurking around here ever since. She's been sighted in windows and walking around the grounds. Like I said, there is a photo on the drive that might have captured her visage in a window of the manor. But no one can explain why this ghostly grieving widow would want to lure dogs to their death. Like, it doesn't really make sense. She didn't have, like, a history with dogs. She was a cat person. She might have been a cat person. Or not even a pet person at all. Mm. Additional experiments have been conducted that don't tap into the supernatural. In 2010, the animal behaviorist David Sands investigated the phenomenon and ruled out the possibility that the animals were deliberately killing themselves. His experiments at the bridge found that dogs, especially long-nosed breeds, were drawn to the scent of mammals below. Yeah, but there are mammals everywhere. We'll get to it. Dr. Sands theorized that the dogs' limited perspective, their ignorance that the path changes from level ground to a bridge spanning a deep gorge, and the smells wafting through the air probably enticed the dogs to jump. So, like, they didn't realize that they were jumping off of, like, a height. They just wanted yep. to get to the smell. Mm-hmm. Surely these dogs have encountered bridges before. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. mammals. I mean, they're, you know... Why didn't, exactly. why didn't they leap down the gorge from the side of the gorge, not in the middle of the bridge? I mean, precisely. It, I have a question. I don't know if you know this. From the path on the bridge, how high is, like, the wall? Um, it's high. So it's high, but there's also, there are, like, gaps, oh, it would appear, yes. that they can get through. Okay. He also theorized that the presence of mink urine, which is known to have a dramatic effect on dogs, could be causing this. Mm. So again, from Wikipedia, quote, this theory was protested by a local hunter and resident of 50 years, a man named John Joyce, who stated that were that there were no mink in the area. However, an investigation by the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, Officer David Sexton, so like someone who was available who works with fucking nature was sent out there found that (laughs) on one end of the bridge that dogs reportedly favored Mm -hmm. contained nests of mice squirrels and mink Mm -hmm. furthermore in an experiment in which 10 dogs were exposed to canisters filled with mouse squirrel and mink scent seven of the dogs all went straight for the mink scent many of them quite dramatically Even the Scottish Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals has investigated the bridge and surrounding area, but none of their findings proved conclusive. Dogs definitely have preferences of, like, what they will pursue. Yeah. Roll in. Yeah, like, like Josie, like, there could be, like, a cat or, like, even, like, a bunny. Like, we were walking Josie the other night and there was a bunny, like, 20 feet in front of her and she, like, barely batted an eye at it. But, like, mm-hmm. squirrels, she will go absolutely nuts. Also, mm-hmm. minks are just really ferocious. So I think a lot of animals, like, mink, they sell mink pee as, like, mm-hmm. deterrent. Yeah. Well, or apparently. Yeah. It, an attraction. It, it, Encouragement. Yeah. Ugh. But even Dr. Sands, the animal, the animal behavior guy, couldn't deny the strange feeling that he got at the bridge. And the counter argument to this logic explanation is, like, why all the deaths occur between the same two parapets. That's where where they always jump. And that could be because it's like an access point. Mm -hmm. 
why dogs don't leap to their deaths off of other bridges in pursuit of minks. Yeah. That's yeah. My main like, question. there are tons of pissing and scurrying critters and right. on underneath bridges all over the UK and beyond, and they don't have 600 fucking dogs jumping off of them. Right. Wow. And these questions still can't be answered. So you'd think that a long macabre history of dogs jumping to their death or at least to their injury would deter dog walkers from this route. Yeah. But I human beings are fucking, fucking stupid. There. Yeah, no. And like a lot of them are just morbidly curious. Mm-hmm. So I'd Mr. Hill, the, the guy. Morbidly curious. You absolutely would. I would go would. to this bridge. I don't. But not with your no, dog. I don't think I'd bring Josie. Or if I brought her, I would have her in a really good harness and leash. Yeah. Right. So Mr. Hill, the guy who lives in the, the, the house on the property, thinks folks are continuing to walk their pups there as a way of balking at superstition. Quote, many people don't believe in the story until they see it for themselves. And even then, they don't think it'll happen to them. Mm-hmm. One pet owner, a woman named Emma Dunlop, admitted to disbelief and curiosity drawing her to the bridge with her golden retriever, Ginger. Despite her skepticism, she wouldn't let him out of the car until he was properly leashed, which, again, that's what all fucking dog owners should do. Mm-hmm. When she did walk Ginger across, she noticed that, quote, he never tried to jump, but sometimes he freezes or hesitates when he gets on the bridge. So I'm always very careful. Like, he definitely has a response. Something is, yeah. To being on the bridge, oh. even if he doesn't try to jump off. It's the white lady. Might be. It is. A psychic <laughs> named Mary Armour took her own Labrador for an experimental walk across the bridge and reported no unusual sensations, only a sense of calmness and serenity, though she admitted that her dog did pull toward the right side of the bridge, which is the side they always want to jump off of. The site now bears a sign that warns approaching visitors to rein in their pets. Quote, dangerous bridge, keep your dog on a lead. Mm-hmm. Even though the bridge itself is completely stable, it's just because so many dogs have jumped off yeah. of it and died yeah. That they put up a fucking sign about it. Right. That's so cool. It's very weird. And then I'm going to leave you with the worst part of this story. Oh, my God. While dogs are the main focus for this bizarre tale today, the bridge has also seen at least one human tragedy. In October of 1994, a man named Kevin Moy, who was suffering from untreated paranoid schizophrenia, threw his two-week-old son, Egan, to his death from the bridge. Ewan, sorry. Because he believed that his son was an incarnation of the devil due to a birthmark. Oh, no. He specifically chose that location due to its rumored dark history. Oh, my God. Two weeks old. Two weeks old. This is from the Otago Daily Times. Quote, the child was killed instantly. And Kevin Moy tried to follow, so he jumped off himself. Tried Though to. he was, res- or tried to jump off. He was restrained by his wife and taken to the nearby Overton house. Oh my God, his wife! His wife was his right wife there. was with him. Mm-hmm. There, he attempted to slash his wrists with a kitchen knife before being taken into custody. Moy believed that he himself was the Antichrist and that his infant son was Satan. He told police that he and the child were responsible for the Gulf War. And they would destroy the world by infecting humanity with a virus. Oh, God. COVID. And he said that by killing his son and himself, he would be saving the world. Oh. And that happened on that fucking bridge. Oh, my God. That poor fucking family. Oh, my Isn't God. Isn't that uh, nuts? Christ. That horrific. That's a haunted ass bridge. It's so haunted. Yeah. They I want to go. All these bridge. dogs. And then, yeah, I mean, 
I said, I want to go. Kenyon goes, they need to tear down that bridge. <laughs> I mean, I want to, before they tear it down, I kind of want to go see it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. But like, uh, I think maybe it is a thin place. It's a thin place. Definitely but then like, like heaven and whatever, but between something. They should, put, mm-hmm. they should put like, you know how on highway walkway overpasses, they have like the cage over it. Yeah. yeah. Put a net. They should put a cage tunnel. Yeah. yeah. That actually, that's Fucking a good cage compromise. that shit. Because then you don't have to, you know, tear it down, but <gasps> dogs can't, plow through dogs it. Dogs can't just, maybe. Just cover it Isn't that weird? It's fucking weird. Jesus. Anyway, that's my case. Love. I don't love you. like it. I love it. I know you. I knew you'd love it. I knew you'd fucking love it. I love this episode. It's so weird. It's such a weird episode. Ugh. I don't know that I I saw something about that when I was googling the other day for this episode, and I just it's not like a long story, and there's not a lot about it, but it just sat with me. I couldn't. I don't have time, and now all I want to do is is research focus this bridge. Yeah, honey, I feel that pain. I feel it deeply. Wow, you're welcome. All well, right. good job, everyone. Yeah, love you. All right, <laughs> thanks well, for we'll listening. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Wine and Crime. Our cover art is by Kala Yip. Music by Phil Young and Corey Wendell. Editing by Jonathan Camp. Check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at wineandcrimepod. If you have questions, answers, or recommendations to share, email us at wineandcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, basically wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way to spread the word. If you'd like to show your support, visit our Patreon page to keep this podcast and the wine flowing. Cheers!